verses 1 through 36. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made, to, made plans to kill, Laz, to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's coat. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtake you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. That was a lot of scripture and a lot of text. So thank you, Ruby, for reading that. Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you this morning. We're currently in the series in the book of John. And up to this series, we were actually up to chapter 17 last week. But today we're jumping back to chapter 12 to coincide with what we call Palm Sunday uh, or the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now this Sunday often sees churches doing some fun stuff like having children waving around palm branches down the aisles or decorating their church. I once went to a church where they went all out. They did the whole thing. They had palm branches everywhere. They had children with palm branches running up and down the aisles. They laid down cloaked down the aisle and they actually did this. They had a guy dressed up as Jesus riding an actual live donkey <laughs> in their church. It was incredible. And yes, maybe one day, but I don't just know. Actually, there was, seeing, seeing a donkey inside a church was awesome enough, but it gets even better. This donkey did the one thing that all of us think, were thinking could happen. Yes, he pooped. In the sanctuary, he pooped. And maybe that's why they had the cloaks down, actually, in the old time. I don't know why. Have you ever wondered why cloaks? Why did they lay the cloaks down? Have you ever wondered why the palm branches? Why the shouting of Hosanna? Why did they celebrate him coming into Jerusalem? This is Palm Sunday, we read a little bit before the actual trial entry in the book of John and a little bit after. Because I wanted you to see it in context. What happened was, here's Jesus with, at his burial anointing. He's being anointed for something, like he's telling all his disciples, I'm being anointed because I'm gonna die. And then comes the triumphal entry. One of the most well-known endearing stories of the Bible but as often with, happens with most Bible stories, its significance is kind of lost in all the hype and all the, the stuff that comes with it. Celebrating a Palm Sunday, the tradition of Palm Sunday. All four Gospels gives a short account of events leading up to and including Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in his final week before he was crucified on the cross at Calvary. They all say he came riding on a donkey or a donkey's colt, but Matthew alone mentions two animals, a mother donkey with her young colt. Only Luke does not mention branches, while John specifically mentions palm branches. 
Matthew marks it that the branches were spread on the road. Only John does not mention cloaks spread on Jesus' path. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do mention cloaks being spread on the path. Around 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem in humility and peace. The Jews acknowledged him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord with shouts of joy and acclamation. Today, I want you to see that Jesus is the triumphant king and what that means for us. First, I want you to see the type of triumphant king is. What do I mean when I say Jesus is a triumphant king? He is the humble king. He is the victorious king. He is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. So there's three things what I mean when I say he's a triumphant king. So number one, he is the humble king. He came riding on a donkey. Now in the ancient Near East, the, the, the donkeys were the main beasts of burden used during times of peace for traveling, for plowing fields, for transporting goods. Um, Abraham used a donkey to travel to Mount Moriah to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. One of God's blessings on Israel for obedience is well-nourished oxen and donkeys that work the ground, Isaiah 30. Joseph's brothers used them to bring grain from Egypt to Canaan during the Great Famine, Genesis 42. On his way to Jerusalem, when Jesus reached Bethpage on the outskirts of the city, he asked two of his disciples to bring back a donkey from a nearby village. Because of his sovereign and divine knowledge, he already knew there was already a donkey prepared for his use to travel in. Now Matthew and John both interpret this event as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about a future king who will defeat Israel's enemies and bring peace and security back to the people. Matthew 21.5 says this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foul beast of burden. Matthew actually introduced a 500-year-old prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 with a portion of Isaiah 62.11. Rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foul of a donkey. And the next one. Oh, wait, we'll go back to that, sorry. Zechariah 9 continues in verse 10 with God destroying chariots, war horses, and bows, weapons of war, which means the king will come to bring peace. This is why his birth, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And angels sang a song proclaiming the coming of peace on earth. On earth. What kind of peace? He brings priest not only amongst nations or among men, not only amongst inner peace of the soul, but most importantly, peace between bitter enemies, between God and man. He came riding in the donkey to fulfill scripture to show the humble king that he is, but two, he's also victorious king. In scripture, branches of palms have been symbolically associated with different ideas. One of these is his use during times of rejoicing. When they would celebrate institution of the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents, they commanded, God commanded Israel to commemorate their exodus by living in tents for seven days. And on the first day of the feast, they would do this, Leviticus 23.40. They, they shall take the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And they shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. This is a time of commemoration, the time of rejoicing as well. This feast is also a reminder to the people of the greenery of the Garden of Eden, when all things were, were right, when all things were, when peace and fruitfulness covered the earth, when God tabernacled amongst his people. 
And I said, what, what they were doing is they were celebrating with palm branches. They were saying, guys, we celebrate the feast and the glory of God, the goodness of God, but we also celebrate that there was a time when the earth was right. There was a time before the earth was broken. There was a time when fruitfulness covered the earth, and we celebrate that by the waving of the palm branches. We celebrate a time when, revel- when the earth will be made complete and joyful again. Now, another idea connected with the waving of palm branches is actually victory over the enemies of the Jews. See, they used waving of palm branches as a celebration of what was, when it was right and that it will be right again. But they took this then, and in, the, uh, in 140 BC, the Jewish rebel leader Maccabee, Simon Maccabee, after defeating the occupying Syrian forces, entered Jerusalem with thanksgiving. And branches of palm trees and with great musical fanfare. The same symbolism is conveyed in the waving of palm branches by pilgrims who accompanied Jesus to Jerusalem. In other words, they were saying, just like Maccabee came in and he conquered and he defeated the conquering army, now we're saying, let's celebrate the victory of this King Jesus. What the people were doing is they were waving palm branches and they were saying, this is our King who we celebrate, the King who we celebrate through the idea of what we did to show what was good in the world, and this King who we celebrate who is going to make all things right in the world. Guys, I want you to know this, that the celebration of Palm Sunday was full of depth and meaning. It was chock full of tradition with anticipation. This was a time where they said, okay, we're, comp- we're occupied land by a foreign power that is way beyond anything that we could ever put together. No matter how much we scrap together every army, no matter how well we train them, no matter how much we get all our resources together, this army that is occupying us is 10 times, 100 times, a million times more powerful than us. We have no hope in and of itself. But we remember a time when this world was good and we celebrate and we believe in a time when we will be set free. And with all that anticipation, with all that emotion, Jesus was brought into Jerusalem saying, is, this is he. He's the fulfillment of the promises. He's the fulfillment of our anticipation. So they wave palm branches, say he's the humble king, he's the victorious king. They also paved his road with cloaks. So since people willingly acknowledge him as their king, they, they laid down their cloaks as a symbol of respect, honor, as a king deserves. Second king says this, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. It's a symbol of respect, submission, that Jesus is king. He's their victorious king. So first, he's a humble king. Two, he's a victorious king. And three, he is a king who came in the name of the Lord. As Jesus approached the city, multitudes of pilgrims accompanied him from behind, and the people of the city joined in welcoming him. And together they joined their voice with the shouts of acclamation. All four gospels mention the people's praise of God, uh, people's praise of God and Israel's king. If they were combined into one, literally, this is what the four Gospels said were being shouted out. Hosanna, blessed is the son of David and the king of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I love that. Turn that into a song, Nathan. All that. (laughs) The word Hosanna literally means please save or save us or oh save, which is also used in Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, oh Lord. This word later became an expression of praise to God, like hallelujah. In other words, hosanna means saved us. He saves. It became an expression of praise of what God does. And hailing Jesus as the son of David, king of Israel, and the one who comes in the name of the Lord, accompanied by hosanna the highest, 
the crowd let it be known that they wanted him to be their military, political, messianic king promised by the Old Testament prophets. I love how even the disciples, it said, literally John says, and the disciples didn't get it either. The people didn't get it. They wanted Jesus to come in with a horse, with a sword, the way we'd want, you know, when we read about Lord of the Rings and you see Aragorn coming in, the prophecies of the, once the king that's coming, or we would see King Arthur coming back, and, you know, I know my usual go-tos, but I love them. I love the epic story. I love the prophecies of the epic adventure hero king that comes all, all those stories that we hear that all come because this is the king that it's based on. And they wanted a king to come in and save their people politically, militarily. And they wanted this king on a horse with a sword saying, I'll conquer and I'll defeat them. The numbers might be great, but I'm more powerful. Just like the numbers were great against David, but David was more powerful through who God was. And it's just the disciples didn't get it. Even when they saw him riding in like a donkey on a donkey, they still didn't get it. He's a victorious king, but he's a humble king. And he came in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees heard all these divine titles being shouted. I mean divine titles. These are divine, messianic God titles being heaped upon this man, Jesus. And in Luke 19, it says, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, said, rebuke your disciples. Before this event, Jesus always told his disciples and followers, kind of, shh, don't tell anybody right now. But this time, Jesus allowed his proclamation as the Messianic King. The fullness of time had come for his identity and mission as Savior and King to be revealed. He rode a never-ridden donkey. I love this kind of neglected detail of this event. Luke 19 and Mark 11 says, no one has ever sat on this donkey. Riding an unbroken animal alludes back to the sacrificial sacrifice offered for purification rites during Israel's wilderness wanderings. Numbers 19 says, a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, on which a yoke has never come. Deuteronomy says, that never, an animal that has never been worked, that has never pulled a yoke, shall be offered. This is not only to show that he is sovereign over animals, but more importantly, guys, this is to show that this is a king riding an unblemished army to show what kind of king he is. He wrote an animal that was meant for sacrifice, not for riding, to show that he was going to be the king who ultimately sacrifices himself. When he says he came in the name of the Lord, he came not to do his own will, but to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is that he was going to be the sacrifice for us all. You see that Jesus is the humble, triumphant king who comes in the name of the Lord. But what does that mean for us? At the very end, it says, now the crowd, verse 17, it says, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. At this point in the scripture, in this context, you think, man, things are going really well in the Gospel of John at this point. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he's greeted by a crowd that hails him as king of Israel. And all of a sudden people are like, whoa, Hosanna, shouting out acclamation of praise. The Pharisees are like, man, this thinks the whole world is going after him. What are we going to do? And if you're one of the disciples at this point, you're thinking, woo, all right, I made the right decision. I wasn't sure, you know, because this Jesus guy says some weird stuff about dying. 
but no, it's okay. It's okay. He's, he's, he's being hailed as king just like I thought. He entered in. He's fulfilling all his prophecy. The people on the streets are shouting out, Jesus, Hosanna, name of David, you are God, we'll follow you. They're like, okay, where's our swords? Let's go. Let's defeat the Romans. Then comes this weird, weird passage. These two Greeks, that is two Gentiles, two non-Jews, not necessarily from Greece. These two Gentiles come to the disciples and ask to see Jesus. And they come to Philip and Philip tells Andrew and then together they go to Jesus. And you can imagine they're, these, they're very excited. Things are going well. The Jews are receiving Jesus, hailing him as king. Look what's happening. Even the Greeks now are coming. You see, the whole world has gone after the Pharisees were afraid. And it confirmed this two Greeks, two Gentiles outside of Israel is coming to see Jesus. And likely Philip and Andrew and all of them are so excited as they come before him to tell this exciting news. And all of a sudden they hear a grain of wheat has to, to die to bear any fruit. It must first die. And he starts speaking about his death. And they're like, huh? What are, what, what are you talking about? Why? We're excited. You've been hailed as king. The world is turning after you. All the streets of Jerusalem is full of people excited about you. Um, forget all that, all the talk about burial stuff. We'll, we'll ignore all that. But now the Greeks are coming to you. The world is after you. They want to see you. Do you get it, Jesus? You're on the pedestal now. You, you're, you're on your way. And then Jesus goes, you know, to bear fruit, you have to die. What? I don't understand. What are you talking about, Jesus? Here's the answer. If you read the book of John consecutively, I mean, that's how kind of it was meant to be read, not like a little bit each week at a sermon. It says the religious leader decided at the end of chapter 11, it's what we kind of read, that after Lazarus from the dead, it's time to kill him. So religious leaders wanted to kill him. Why? Well, who are the people visiting him? They're the Gentiles. They're the unwashed, the unclean. They're what the religious leaders called the immoral. They haven't been living according to the law of God. Now, this is interesting. They, they, they look like they're seekers. They're inquirers. Uh, they're, they've come to Jerusalem for a reason during this intentional time of the feast. So they may be spiritual inquirers. They're here in Jerusalem. And here's what they found when they came to Jerusalem, these two Gentiles. This is what they would have found. They would have found a wall. Around the central sanctuary, there was a wall. The Jews could go inside the wall and into the inner court and toward the sanctuary, but there was a wall. All over the wall were posted warning notices that basically Gentiles can go upon this point. For Gentiles to go beyond this point, they would die. Gentiles, if you come in here, you're, you're going to die. This is no place for Gentiles. Warning, Gentiles, stay out. Gentiles were the outsiders. They were the spiritual outsiders, the moral outsiders, the racial outsiders. And when Jesus Christ sees the insiders about to kill him and the outsiders seeking him, the more the religious people rejecting him and they're spiritually unclean and inferior receiving him, he says, this is what my death is all about. Jesus is making a statement here that he isn't just king of the Jews. He's king of the world and king over all peoples. Let me see that real quick again. I love this. In the midst of the proclamation of all the Jewish people saying, here's our king, here's our Jewish messianic king that we're waiting for, who's going to put down all the people. And a lot of them mistakenly thought that they forget the passages in the Old Testament where they're supposed to be a blessing to the nations. They forget that stuff and they just think, we're God's chosen people. So this king's going to come up, he's going to strike down the Roman Empire, and the Jews are going to be lifted up, and we're going to rule in dominance. That's what they're expecting. But right after that, intentionally, John shows that the Gentiles came. And Jesus said, for you, I'm going to die. 
You see, Jesus is the triumphant king, but he's not just a king of the Jews. He's a king of all people. Do you hear that? But not only is he the king of all, but being the king who dies changes everything. It changes everything. The world says if you want to go up, you go up. If you want power, you go for it. If you want to dominate the world, you become strong and you dominate the world. Every culture, every religion says the spoils go to the strong, the victors, the powerful get the victory prize. I mean, it's just, there it is. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Be stronger, be tougher. Survive. Survival of the fittest. But the cross comes along and gives us a very interesting case study. Here's a man without military power, without political power, without financial power. He has a group of, small group of followers, but they're mainly illiterate fishermen. He's executed at the young age of 33. He's penniless because when he executed him, all he owned was a robe. And even that was cast lots for as they ripped it apart. And at the very, he's not only abandoned by friends, but he's abandoned by the Father and the God he served. Not just despite all of that, but because of all that, because of that weakness, because of that vulnerability, because of who he was in that king who dies, he became the most influential figure in the human history. He is the triumphant king who dies. My whole life, I grew up believing that I had to get a great education, go to a great college, make a lot of money, you know, and then maybe I could amount to something. You know, I grew up, my parents were awesome, loving parents, but that's what they said to me. They said, Lawrence, if that other kid makes a 95, you better make a 98. That's the only way you'll survive in this world. But the cross says that that is the way the insignificance, if that's the foundation of your life. The cross is like that moment in the movie when the main character figures out, that it figures it all out and realizes, oh, what? That's the answer? This whole time I thought it was this, but all of a sudden the cross comes along and in that moment in that movement, he's like, you've been there the whole time? I love you. You know, or what? That's the one who did the murder? Or what? It's that moment when you're just kind of like, oh, he gets it now. The cross comes along and says, everything that you've been chasing for in this world, everything you think will bring satisfaction, everything you think that's of worth and of purpose, I'm gonna flip it upside down and say the way of the world is no longer the way of triumphant military might and power and political power and striving and earning and making. The cross says no, it's no longer that. The cross says now it's a gift and what is good is to die. The cross comes through and contradicts everything the world tells you. It, it overturns all human evaluations. I love this is the perfect time for Jesus to remind his disciples of this. You see, here's all his disciples and they're pumped right? They're ready to go. They're ready to take the sword. They're ready to fight. They're ready, ready to conquer. They're ready to kick out the Romans, take over their city. They're good to go. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like, uh-uh. He's Debbie Downer. You know, he's like, oh, no, no, we've got to die. And they're like, Jesus, man, we're on a high here. You know, come on, man. We're just, you're king. We sleep as a king. And this is, in this real moment, there's a real victory. The real message, he says, is the cross. It's flipping this world upside down. And saying, hey, you're not worth something because you're powerful. You're not worth something because you're beautiful. You're not worth something because you make a lot of money. You're not worth something because of this. You're worth something because you die, because I chose to die for you. You're worth something because my love for you is bigger than all of that. It flips it all upside down. Tim Keller says the following. This is a long quote, so we'll put it on the screen as well. And this is what Tim Keller says. 
When Paul writes 1 Corinthians 1, when he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness, in other words, lunacy, to those who are perishing, where is the wise man, where is the scholar, where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God by the cross made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolish of God, the cross, is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of the world, the cross, is stronger than man's strength. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying the gospel of the cross, the doctrine of the cross, that God became weak and God became vulnerable and God gave up all power and God suffered and God died and God lost and God was defeated. That is the way of salvation. The world has a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different religions, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different parties, liberal and conservative, Muslim and Buddhist and atheist and secular. It has all these. The gospel of the cross, Paul says, is not one more philosophy in a row. It's not more, one more religion in a row. It's the complete contradiction of all of them. It shatters all the bases of human evaluation like a rock shatters a window. It tells you everything you heard is the world is wrong, everything, because the cross says the way up is down. The gospel says a weak God has come to save. A vulnerable God calls you to be weak. And what do you mean be weak? Well, you see, salvation has come through the cross. The only people who can get it are people who are admitting that they're so needy and sinful that somebody had to come and die for them. You have to admit your weakness. You have to admit your, you have to repent. Do you hear this message? Is this message for you today? Maybe you're tired of running the rat race of life thinking the way of the world. Maybe if I do this, accomplish that, look, look this way, I can be loved or I can mean something. The message today is that the triumphant king became weak and vulnerable. He died on the cross in order for you to have the good news that you don't have to earn your way to salvation and relationship with God. He gives it to you out of his love for you. Will you accept that now? I mean, here's, here's the deal. I love this. This is our triumphant. He's a victorious, he's a humble king. But what he does is he flips the world upside down. He says the way to life is to die. And the way for you to fully gain true and everlasting life is to accept the death of Jesus in your place. No more striving. No more going to church and looking a certain way. No more acting like you're something. No more stapling like, like you're a healthy tree and you, have like, you don't have any fruit, but you're like, oh, I better look like I have fruit, so let me get some apples and staple on. See, I'm a good-looking fruit. God, please, will you accept me? None of that. The whole gospel is written so that the good news is this, that the good news is that the Savior came, not when you were perfect, not when you were righteous, not when you were good-looking and everything was put together and all this good fruit, but when you were broken, when you were abused, when you were hurt, and in your lowest state, he comes to you and says, I know you, and I love you, and I've called you to purpose. Come with me and check out the life of what it means to die to gain eternal life. Amen. Have you done that? Can't tell you how freeing it is to say, no, this rat race called life is not enough for me. I don't want to be stuck in that hamster wheel. I don't want to be stuck striving and earning, striving and earning, striving and earning, just hoping and just hoping I'm good enough, hoping somebody loves me enough, hoping that God can love me enough, hoping that what I do is good enough, hoping and hoping instead I want to be confident the fact that it's not based on my own ability, but the fact that God is good and he loves me and his son died for me and he chose me and I can say, thank you God. That's what comes when I have a triumphant king. Guys, can I tell you something? You guys ever seen Scooby-Doo? Anybody ever seen Scooby-Doo? You guys remember Scrappy? Who remembers Scrappy? 
right? Scrappy was this puppy. He was like the nephew of Scooby or something like that. And Scrappy thought he could take anybody in a fight, right? Man, that boy had confidence. Scrappy was like, let me out. I mean, Scrappy was always like that. I love Scooby and Scrappy, by the way. I remember the other day, um, I was at church, and uh, this, is a, this is a different church, but a long time ago, I was at this church, and this uh, big playground part fell over, right? And we had two guys, we were trying to lift it up, and we were just struggling. So we got like everybody, like five or six people, and we we're all just trying to lift this really heavy piece of equipment up, and we just couldn't do it. And so this little boy, I kid you not, this cute little guy, he comes up and goes, oh, just wait for my dad, he can do it. And I was like, what? Like there's six of us, big guys, trying to lift this up. And he's like, no, no, my dad, just wait for my dad, he can do it. And his dad shows up, and I kid you not, his dad was like, no. Like, there's just no way. He was like so small. But in his, in his kid's eyes, he's like, no, my dad can do it though. He's got it. He's, trust me. He's so strong. I love that. This kid was like, my dad can do it. Guys, can I tell you something? When your salvation and your identity is no longer based on how hard you earn and strive and work, but it's not based on your dad who can do it, oh, that confidence is so sweet. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? When it's no longer based on, okay, I strived hard enough, I did good, I prayed X amount of times, and I've gone to church this amount of times, I've read the Bible X amount of times, but it's no longer based on how hard you think you try to look good for God, but it's based on the fact that God himself is a triumphant king who chose to die, chose you, loves you, redeems you. By his own power and his own choice and his own love, when it's based on that, your confidence, well, it's not on me, it's in him, that, whoo, he's strong. Do you hear that? That's where your confidence is built. And when we have a triumphant king like that, that's what we stand in confidence in. Man, you can be scrappy. You can be that little boy and say, my dad, oh yeah, he got that. And it can actually be true. But then here's the cool thing. The triumphant king who dies for you also calls you to imitate him. Like a dad who has a trade, he passes it on to his child. He teaches him this skill you know, whether it's, I don't know, I can't think of skill levels, so blacksmithing, <laughs> I don't know, that's the first skill that came to my mind, carpentry. <laughs> he says, imitate me. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, verse 25. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Honor the one. This is so crazy. Where does it ever say that, this is one of the few places ever in the Bible that says that, God will honor us. But it says that. As we imitate him, he gives us honor. We were designed for imitation. He who loves his life will lose it. He hates his life in this world shall keep it. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where? Follow him to Gethsemane. Follow him to Calvary. Jesus is saying, I'm going to glory. I'm going to bear much fruit. And the way I'm going is by hating my life in this world, by suffering and dying for you. And then he says, do it with me. Die with me. So as a church, as individual Christians with many hard things in front of you, let's not miss either of these, the hard and the glorious. If we only see the hard part, we'll miss the glorious. Guys, I want you to understand that what God's calling us to do is both hard and glorious. He's called us to imitate him, to follow him in his death and sacrifice. And those of you, you're here like, that doesn't sound very good. It's, it's hard. 
See, the walk, the path that God's called us upon is not one of just like, ooh, um, everything's gonna be great now. I follow Jesus, I choose to accept him. My confidence, yes, it's there and it's strong, but now all of a sudden, does that mean that everything is good and I make a million dollars and life, everything goes well, my kids all love me and my job is great and I succeed in everything? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that what you have is greater than no matter what circumstance happens, you have the confidence to face it all with love and joy. But here's what it does promise. Here's what it says. It says, a walk that God's called you on is the one to imitate him. And it's to sacrifice yourself and to die. And it's hard, but it's also glorious. Hear this when I say it's hard and glorious. If we only see the hard part, we miss the power and the freedom. If we only see the glorious part, we minimize the sacrifice. So I got this from John Piper. There are four hard things about this call. And there are four glorious things. Number one, hard thing. We must die. This is hard. What does it mean to die? Does it mean literally, oh, I should just die right now? No, it means die to yourself. Die to the part of you that wants to greed the materialism that buys into the lives of the world. Die to yourself means value God's life and calling upon you more than you value your own life. It means, some of you, it means to actually die. Two. Jesus calls us to hate our lives in this world. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world, he calls us to hate our lives. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean to hate everything. Oh, I hate life, being grumpy, and oh, life stinks, and all this. No, no, no. It means to say, I love something else so much more. To, compared to that, is to hate it. Do you hear me? It means to say that, like, I love the, my eternal significance, my eternal home, the reality of a future heaven where there are no more weeping and no more crying, so much more. My citizenship in heaven so much more that it makes everything else seem hateful in comparison. And to live for that. Three, Jesus calls us to follow him. In other words, serving him, following him, serving him, in a, following him to roads that lead to death. Roads that lead to hard places. So that means, guys, can I tell you, 99.9999999% of our time, we make decisions based on what's most comfortable for us. Am I right? The decisions I make often have to do with, okay, is that easy? How much work do I have to do to do it? Do I enjoy doing it? Those are typically how I answer most questions in life. It's just reality, isn't it? Oh, I don't want to eat there, it's too far. You know, most even basic decisions like that. And what this call is to say, no, no, don't make decisions on your life based on what's easy. Do decisions based on your life, what God called you to do. Are you willing to follow him even when it's hard? Even when it means comfort, losing comfort. If it means whatever it means for you. Four, he calls us to serve him, to do his bidding. To be the servant that says, God, what do you want me to do? Let me just do it. Waiting, waiting to serve. I love the idea of a, a waiter, because a waiter waits. Does that make sense? This image of a waiter is kind of like at the table being like, yes, how can I help you? You know, this idea of waiting to serve. And so where we need to take this posture of waiting to serve. God, where have you called me? What have you called me to do? Is it to the hard places? Is it to the neighbor? Is it to my work? Is it to the homeless? Is it to the hungry? Is it to whoever? Are you waiting to hear from God? Are you willing to serve? Those are four hard things. But here's four glorious things. Yes, the seed must die, but when it dies, it bears much fruit. Your death is not in vain. 
that leads to glory. It bears much fruit. Two, yes, if we love our life, we will lose it. And yes, we must hate our life in this world. But why? What will be the outcome? That we may keep eternal life. What we lay down for Christ, he'll put in our hands again with glory. We cannot out-sacrifice his resurrection generosity. Three, yes, we must follow him to Calvary, but with what outcome? It says, where I am, there shall my servant be. Jesus used those very words one other time when he said he goes to heaven. He goes to prepare a place for you, and where I am, you will also be. If we follow him to Calvary, we follow him to glory. Number four, yes, we must become his servants, but what does the Father do to his servants? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father honors him. Guys, I don't know about you, but that's huge. I don't know what culture you grew up in, but for me, this idea of honor and culture is a big deal. My Father honors me. In other words, that's like for me, maybe for you, it's my Father who will look at me and says, I'm so proud of you. Oh, man, I'm so proud of you. Really? He honors you. I have time. I'm going to try to do this really quickly. I have a sh- I've shared this story with, with you guys before. I'm going to share it again. But in the second and third century after Christ, there were incredible plagues that hit the world, the Mediterranean world, especially the cities. And what most people did when the plagues hit Mass amounts of people were dying. They were putting people in quarantine. And it was a terrible, terrible time. And what most people did was, what most people would do, they ran away. They left the city in droves. They quarantined people. They ran away. They left the sick behind to die, even their own family. But in history, we know one group chose to stay around. It was the Christians. Why? Because the way of the cross had been burned into their hearts. It's absolutely crazy, a lunatic idea. You stick around and you're willing to die to be a comfort to those who are dying. You stick around and go to the plague places, risking infection, disease. You take care of the sick, you take care of the dying, not just of your friends and your family, but of your enemies. And they did it and they dropped like flies. Christians died. They took care of people and they died. The historians tell us that after the plague subsided, though, a huge proportion of the population of the cities who survived owed their lives to the sacrificial love of the Christians. When the plague subsided, there was an enormous influx into the church. There were an enormous number of conversions. Within 100 years, Christianity became the most powerful, most influential, most populous religion in the empire. Think about that. If a group of people got together... And their goal in life was, how can we be the most influential? How can we gather the most people? How can we affect the most people? What would they say? How would we go about it? They're not going to say, typically, let's just go and die. Let's go to the hardest places. Let's give, live most sacrificially. Let's be willing to die for the sake of enemies. Let's go into the difficult places. We would never say that. We'd say, let's build up a lot of money. Let's gather a ton of people and tell them what they want to hear. But Christians did the exact opposite. They went up by going down. This is lunacy. This is lunacy because the world is distorted. And what the cross is saying to us is reshape the world. This is the exact type of lunacy that grew the church. And this is the exact type of lunacy that God's calling us to right now as followers of him. 
We have a triumphant king who is a humble, victorious king who came in the name of the Lord. But he's a king who dies and calls us to imitate him. May we imitate him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of the cross that comes in like a rock and shatters the glass of our existence, that comes in like a, like a turn in a movie that says, oh, this is right. This is what the world was supposed to be. The world is broken. Thank you for showing us what is right, flipping it all upside down. Thank you that we no longer have to strive and earn and work our way in this rat race, but instead we can be confident that you know, you chose, you love, and you're powerful enough to keep us. May we imitate you in your death, Jesus, so the world may be transformed forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.